You're listening to The No Name Photo Show, the podcast dedicated to lively conversations about the creativity, business, and technology of photography. I'm your host, Brian Matias. Let's chat. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 54 of The No Name Photo Show. I am your host, Brian Matias, and I'd like to say hello from beautiful Reina, which is a little village in Norway's Lofoten Islands. Now, back in episode 51, I made a certain promise because uh, I was uh, I had my, my guest on, uh, and the topic, we actually had multiple topics we want to talk about, but the first topic, which was kind of the state of social media and strategies around it and what's going on, that that was just a really, really uh, deep, you know, we, we unpacked a lot of very deep topic. And so we decided to have, I said, I would have him on on episode 52. But as you clearly know, episode 52 came and went and I had uh, my friend David Schloss on and then episode 53 came out and I had Luca Senko on. So I'm happy to report that now with episode 54, I'm making good on my promise. Uh, and I'd like to welcome my good buddy, Colby Brown, back to the show. Colby, how are you doing? Uh, it's I'm good to be back. I've been waiting for this moment for weeks, just kind of idling by. And I'm glad that we're finally following through with our promise made in 51. Yeah, you see, Colby was, I mean, he actually canceled workshops. He was just sitting at home. And then I had to really promise, you know, if we flew to Norway together that we would do the um, the podcast. So uh, we are <laughs> sitting here. We're also with uh, our friend Pedro Kin, who is uh, co-leading this workshop with, with Colby. So I thought that we would have a little bit of fun. A lot of times these, these episodes, we talk about a specific topic and uh, kind of, again, unpack it. But we don't really talk too much about you know, the preparation and, and the gear that goes into certain types of photography. And I think that's something that is important. I think it's enjoyable. I know I enjoy talking about it and, and listening uh, to it and watching YouTube videos. So we're here, like I mentioned, in uh, the Lofoten Islands in Norway. Colby, you're going to be kicking off a workshop in two days from now. And um, this is a, where what are we in February? So it, it's a pretty cold time of year. So I thought it'd be fun, you know, if you can, let's talk a little bit about what you do um, to to kind of prepare it for this kind of photography, because shooting in these, uh, you know, Arctic um, sub-freezing temperatures, that, that provides its own challenges. So let's talk about that. If Let's just start. And if you can tell people just, uh, you know, first of all, uh, let's just start with gear because that's the easy one. But like, is there any particular type of gear outside, of obviously, of the camera and the lenses that always makes it to your bag when you're going, say, to um, the Arctic, you know, up here above the Arctic Circle or you're going down to Antarctica? Like, what, what are the things that you always take with you? Well, I think it depends on the location. And again, of course, the time of year. So here in Norway and the Foot Islands above the Arctic Circle, we know that the temperature generally hovers around freezing, but does dip below, especially at night when we're photographing aurora and all sorts of things like that. So with those things in mind, I guess the first thing that I do is certainly research wrapped around the context of where I'm going and what it's going to be like. Assuming it is going to be quite cold and is going to be uh, below freezing, so uh, expect some ice. Uh, there's a couple different things that I like to make sure that I bring with me. I'd say the first and foremost, and I know it's something that you use as well, is the micro spikes. Oh, yeah. So micro spikes are, you, you probably heard like the 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 cheaper, more affordable, or, or more universally known variations of this is called like yak tracks. So yeah. at like your local REI stores 
or the uh, MEC if you're in Canada or wherever you're at. Yak tracks are like these little slip-on things that go underneath your boots that have uh, these kind of spiral wires. And yak tracks in all honesty, are not very good. They don't provide that much connection point between the ice and yourself. Uh, there's still too much, uh, there's not enough friction. So you can still fall and hurt yourself. Whereas micro spikes are like little, little tiny spikes, kind of like a very mini, mini crampons that just slide in uh, over your, or under your boot and give you such great traction. And, and I can, you know, you can walk uphill on an ice, you know, ice ledge and not have any issues. Yeah. They're phenomenal. You can get them online. I'm sure we can maybe drop them in the sure. the, the, the notes here. Um, they're like 60, 70 bucks, but they're a wonderful investment. And I do not do any winter trips without them. Yeah. I mean, so the first time I ever went to Iceland and Norway was actually with Colby um, and our buddy Joe Azure. Uh, in like 2015. And I and I asked Colby, like, what should I pack with me? Or what should I get? Because I'd never been definitely above the Arctic Circle. And I remember, and it's the the, the micro spikes are by a company called Catula. Uh, and again, like Colby said, thank you for that. We'll include the link to the sh in the show notes at nonamephotoshow.com. But the way I always tell people, uh, the way I describe it is, it's like, it's like a superpower, because you you actually can walk like Colby said uphill on a solid sheet of ice and walk as if you're on a on a boardwalk or just anything uh it, because it, it has these little metal spikes that really give purchase into the into the ice so um I agree with you 100% like and, and you even told your workshop attendees like do not bring yak tracks make sure that you're getting micro spikes because there's some gnarly places here right absolutely no I, and i think that i mean again it's a common misconception when i say micro spikes people I, I constantly get clients reaching out and saying oh i have these yak tracks will that work and my initial answer is absolutely not um, they're great for like basic stuff around your house if you live in a winter area but if you really want to go you know if you're doing more you know light hiking into the winter uh into you know winter landscapes you definitely want something that's more secure and i don't just use them on ice i also use them on snow i mean ice is certainly where you get the most benefit but you get more traction on snow especially hard snow uh, if you've ever been in temperatures they're super you know super cold super freezing where that snow freezes and it's not quite ice it's still snow and it crunches this just gives you that much more uh, flexibility to to be agile and to be able to jump around and not worry about it. And the same thing with rocks. Like here in Norway, this area is known for its seascapes and its fjords. So being able to stand on ice and then step onto some of these, what normally would be slippery rocks uh, right here on this, on you know some of these seascapes, the micro spikes provide even greater protection on those places to allow you to kind of grip to these areas and get around safely. So I want to I want to uh, backtrack for a second to something you said before we start talking about spikes and that was you know you do some research about the locations you go to so can you talk a little bit about um what what does that mean what does that look like like what kind of research do you do where do you go yeah absolutely so i mean again most of the research uh for this type of stuff revolves more so around weather rather than shooting locations i mean some of that also comes into play and the most important information that you need to take into account is historical and statistical uh, in terms of what to expect on average in a february or march with the asterisks or caveat knowing that weather is changing quite drastically around the world and I've had number, numerous times where I've gone on trips, expeditions, marketing campaigns, and even workshops around a certain season, and the weather has been completely different. So layering is the principle that you have three different core layers for any given uh, situation where you can pull off the, your, your outer layers to warm your, or to cool yourself down if you, you get too hot. 
So the first layer is your base layer. This is the layer that's closest to your body. Generally, it's more form-fitting. For this, you typically want something that's more wool-based. You can always get something that's more artificial, like polypropylene, uh, that also keeps in warmth. Ultimately, you want something that keeps in warmth, but allows moisture to wick a little bit, just in case you do get hot. So wool is a great example of how this works well, because when it gets wet, it will still keep in your warmth. So if you sweat or you fall in water or whatever's happening, it still can keep your body warm, uh, your, your body temperature at a certain range. Whereas something like cotton yeah. uh, is a horrible idea. Yeah. Like wearing jeans uh, intentionally in some of these uh, these locations, especially if it's going to be wet and cold, is just asking to get sick because cotton does a really poor job of insulating and keeping you warm when you're um, you're out in these environments once they get wet. So that's your base layer. Your next is your mid layer. This is where you typically want to have something like a down or puffy jacket. Uh, you can also get uh, other thicker kind of like almost base layer like material that will also add an extra layer of insul insulation depending on how cold it's going to get. But for me, most of the time it's wool for the base layer. And then the mid layer is going to be something like a down jacket. And then your outer layer is called your shell. This is typically for most situations is going to be a very light, thin, usually Gore-Tex type of, uh, of material that just puts on, uh, you put on on the outer edge and that's just essentially to cut out wind and usually to mostly to cut out uh, water, uh, rain, and snow. And so those three layers together provide you the best protection. And depending on the situation, then obviously you can pull one or two of those off. Yeah. Um, the uh, Again, so I will tell you that all of my um, winter gear, all of it, I mean, I made it in one fell swoop purchase, as, as Shark used to say, buy once, cry once, because uh, Colby kind of, I asked Colby, like, all right, what do you recommend? And I will say, depending on which brands you go with, you could be spending a, a, a chunk of change. With that said, I will say that the stuff that I've bought um, has been worth every penny. So Colby, you know, he, I remember he recommended, uh, he had the, you had the, the, the Theta, um, a AR. the Theta AR, which for this, so we're talking about the shell now. So the shell is made by Arcteryx, Canadian company. Um, and it's, it literally is like a sheet of paper. Um, and it, it, it's, it sits on, on the, the outermost part of what you're wearing. Granted, it's that your upper body, your, your lower body, it's different, different, story. different story. Um, and we can talk about that afterwards, but you know, so I have an Arcteryx shell. I have the Arcteryx, uh, the kind of the puffy, um, mid layer. And then I just buy these, um, on Amazon, these, um, uh, what is it like below 66 or something like that or above, I, I have to look, I'm wearing, or I have it back here, but that's my wool layer. One of the things that I also will say, uh, like, you, you know, with the wool layers is especially these days, they also have uh, some really good anti odor, um, kind of like combatants so you don't need to buy a bunch of them you could buy one or two and it just does i mean you know you, you'll sweat but like it doesn't smell so you don't have to spend a lot of money yeah and a given trip i think a lot of people overpack i mean the term I you're do. looking I for do. is microbial and so essentially microbials built in um, elements into the fabric of the material in this case we're talking base layers that essentially eliminate a lot of those odors now typically in cold environments again if you're dressing properly you shouldn't be sweating a lot um, so that is kind of a double factor in the sense where you come to a place like Lofoten for a week. Some people think they have to have, you know, 
seven base layers and all these different other things like that's not always the case you can actually pack lighter get away with maybe you know three um and then have you know maybe two mid layers um you know puffy down puffy jackets or things like that that are thermals and then one shell and like that's enough for you to get by not counting underwear long underwear other things like that but it's a usually good setup and you don't have to pack so much stuff for a trip like this even though people sometimes think they have to yeah i mean i would say that the one of the bulkiest things that I take with me, I bought uh, two pairs of, of ski pants and those are, um, you know, they can be really, they, they, you could, they can compress down, but they are kind of puffy. And the nice thing about them, usually for those of you that aren't skiers like me, um, it has kind of a built in gator system. So a gator is uh, this kind of like a, a, a it helps, it, it's a, it, it's kind of like a shell that goes around your lower leg to prevent snow from getting into your boot. And maybe we can actually talk because gators are an actual piece of gear. So I assume that's something that you recommend as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, in a situation like this in Norway, in the Lofoten Islands, you have a lot of seascapes. And so the seas- seascapes, you're going to get the tides coming in and out and you can get your boots wet, especially if you want to get some of those really dramatic images like right there on the shoreline. Sometimes that means right in the water. So what I recommend is not only a Gore-Tex boot, um, I use Solomon, uh, some of my favorite brands, there's certainly other good ones out there, but you want a, a really nice, generally somewhat insulated, doesn't have to be fully insulated depending on the temperature or the, the location you go to, Gore-Tex boot that is fully waterproof. And then uh, in addition to that, I recommend uh, bringing a set of gaiters. Now, typically in this situation, you have gaiters and you have waders. So waders uh, usually go above knee high and they're more of like almost like pants or overalls that you can put on that they can go um, waist high uh, or chest high, depending on the situation. Like what, fly fishermen? Yeah, like fly fishermen. I usually more so use those in warmer environments or like Iceland in the summer, things like that. But here in the wintertime, because I'm usually not going in, you know, uh, up to my hip intentionally, that I think gators are a better choice. And that essentially this, it, it's this uh, outer shell that is uh, kind of bomb proof, kind of like your, your, like the Arcteryx Theta we were talking about. Right. That wraps around your boot uh, the part of your boot and goes up your pant leg and uses Velcro. And if you, if you close it correctly, uh, in theory, you can have water splash up to your knee, or at least as long as it doesn't go above your gaiter and then water still won't drip into your boot, which is a constant, uh, can be an issue. And then you get cold socks and cold boots and you got to dry them out, all sorts of issues. So gaiters are a wonderful choice. Um, outdoor research is probably the best yep. company out there that has some, if you live in the United States, REI has some of their own branded stuff. That's okay. But outdoor research, I think definitely has the, the best ones, uh, with the crocodile model, um, is that the top tier and they have a couple other ones below that, depending on how rugged you want them to be. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I think I started with the REI model and if I remember, yeah, we, I was visiting you, we were going, I think to Iceland and we, I was at your house in Colorado and we went last minute to REI so I can change out some of that, that gear. Um, man, that's, that's, I can't believe how that's already been like four years, but, um, last part of the gear, as far as apparel goes, let's talk about extremities, top of head, ears, hands, and uh, I mean, feet, just wool, good wool socks, right? Yeah, good wool socks. And like I said, just solid boots that are Gore-Tex. Um, and, and like I said, if your feet get cold, insulated boots can help. But there's a big difference between full-on winter boots and then hiking boots that are also Gore-Tex and have a little bit of insulation. So just kind of keep that in mind that 
Um, yeah, if you're going to like truly to the Antarctic or the subarctic and you're going to be doing a lot of stuff in like negative 30, 40 degrees, that's when you want the full on winter insulated boots. Whereas for most of us, it's more standard hiking boots, um, of a brand like Solomon that is Gore-Tex uh, friendly with a nice pair of wool socks. Usually in the sock department, I'm looking more so like products like, uh, come out from smart wool, yeah. uh, which have some great sock options out there. They're not super cheap, but you know, again, getting a handful of pairs go a long way. Uh, in terms of your head, uh, I recommend, well, you can go two different routes again, depending on how cold it's going to get. Usually you want to get a wool lined, um, beanie, at least around the ears that usually don't have, doesn't have to go around the full pop top of your head. You have to realize that most of the heat inside your body comes out of the top of your head as well as your hands. So you want to keep those both warm, but also so that they have some ability to breathe because otherwise you will overheat. So that's why typically most beanies that you see out there have the wool lined around the edges, which essentially covers your ear, but not at the very top because that's where you want a little bit of heat to escape so that you can kind of regulate your body temperature. Uh, and you don't have to do wool lined. I actually don't do it too much anymore these days, unless I'm going into like the negative twenties, uh, just because I can regulate my body temperature pretty well. Cause I do so much work here in the winter environments. Uh, that being said for your gloves, different story. Yeah. Most people's fingers get cold and I know we use two different companies. Both of them are great. I use a company called Valoret, which is a Norwegian company, uh, which is, is uh, interesting considering we're here in Norway. Right. But it was created by Norwegian photographers. And essentially, they're just, they have a lot of different types of gloves. Um, they've kept my hands warm in the Antarctic, in the Canadian subarctic, in Iceland and Norway for years. Um, they're great. I love them. Uh, they're pretty bomb proof. And they, like I said, they have a bunch of different versions depending on how cold it gets. And then you have, what's I've got, so I got a pair of these uh, gloves called, he they're Heat 3, if I remember correctly. And I got them before uh, you and I went to uh, Abraham Lake in January of 2017. Now, you know, uh, I know also Pedro's got the Valorettes, mm -hmm. and I'm I'm starting to get a little envious, and here's why: two reasons. So the the Heat threes I got are they're like a big mitten, and along the on the inner on the inside of the mitten, there's a zipper where, which allows you to kind of flip it back, exposing your fingers, and it also comes with a pair of of uh, liners. You know, um, what, what what are liners usually made out of? Wool. Like, wool. Okay. Usually. And I will say, I, these are like these gloves were like three hundred over three hundred dollars US, so you would expect them to be like really good. And the the the, um, uh, the mittens are they're really really you know robust and they have nice uh, nice little kind of appointments like uh, elastic wrist um, things, so you can kind of you know if you want to take them off and dangle them, you can. The liners were very disappointing. Uh, they started kind of fraying, and then it was one of those e tip you know digital uh, compatible. Uh, liners that you're supposed to touch your phone that stopped working within a few weeks and you know you know this colby like when you're out when we're out uh, it's not just shooting but we're also using our phones to capture either uh, content for instagram stories or just behind the scenes behind stuff. the scenes stuff and if you have to take off the liner which i had to do i was just in uh, the dolomites in freezing temperatures and those um those liners really really disappointed me um you know, that defeats the complete purpose of what they are. So I'm actually going to, I'm going to be probably, I don't necessarily recommend Heat 3 right now. And for the, as far as this episode goes, I would stick with, I know Colby, you're really happy with it. Pedro seems to be really happy with it. And um, so I would check that out again. Links will be in uh, the description. 
Yeah, and you can the the Valorite again is a Norwegian company, so you can buy them here in the EU. Uh, you can also get them through various different stores um, in the U.S. as well. So um, yeah, all those links will be in the uh, show notes. Yeah, and um, I think I like the fact that you said that they were kind of made by photographers, Norwegian photographers. So they kind of understand photographers do have kind of a unique uh, needs. We we need to touch dials and stuff as opposed to just someone who's going in the cold to wear gloves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the gloves that I that I use um, have just the, so the thumb and the and the, the pointer finger are able to come uh, up and kind of lift off your finger and connect through a, a, a magnet to stay out of the way so that you have easy access not only to your camera gear when you need it, if your gloves are becoming a little bit too cumbersome, but also when you want to pull out your phone and do an Instagram story really quick, it just takes me half a second to kind of flip up that thing, uh, deal with the cold for a second or two, put it back in and it warms back up. But you can wear a line with it right you can wear a liner too yeah. if you want to you um, don't. i i find them warm enough i mean here again in norway we have we've had you know a couple times where it's been you know maybe 20 degrees fahrenheit neg you know negative six uh, uh, celsius it hasn't been too cold for me so i usually don't wear them with liners if i'm getting again into you know maybe hovering around zero fahrenheit um things like that that's a different story and then i probably would use the liners as well but for the most part my hands stay quite warm just naturally so i don't use the liners yeah i'm a pansy like okay. i i my 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 extreme like my fingers they go through waves like they'll go through like oh man i'm gonna these things are gonna fall up from hypothermia to oh this is okay not too bad i will say another big minus for heat three man the more i think about it the the, the more pissed off i get but uh, only because they were so expensive. Speaking of magnets, so I mentioned how the the mitten has that zipper. Um, you you unzip it and you can flip the, the the top mitten part back, and it also uses a magnet. But if you even remotely bend your fingers, the the that flap will will fly back, and you don't know how many shots with my cell phone I have that are ruined because that that top flap. Gets, uh, in the way. gets in the way yeah. and so just having the fingers um i think is a really good thing you know and as far as the liner goes i was complaining about that so much so that again i was in dolomites and on the last the 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 night of the last day or the night of the last day whatever <laughs> the last day i went out with uh you know a fellow friend of ours uh, mustafa and we just walked around cortina look and i went into an outdoor store and bought a new pair of of liners that actually i find that liners that use leather for the fingertips, those digital tips, as opposed to whatever that fabric is, work better. So I could be in my head, but... It creates uh, more friction. That's what you're looking for is friction on the phone, certain types of friction that it's going to pick up at thinking that it's a finger. So yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So so anyway, I think, um, I hope that gives everyone here um, some good ideas. Uh, you know, if, if you are planning, say, uh, doing a trip by yourself or you're going on a workshop, you know, Colby does these workshops all the time. Um it's just good to have in mind the warmer weather is a completely different story. You know, there you're also talking about breathable clothing, but like Colby said, you can just, you know, take down to a base layer and you're usually good. Um, so let's kind of, I want to use this as a transition point to the topic that we originally wanted to talk about in episode 51. So first, you know, um, we got here three days ago at this point, I think, you know, three nights ago. Um, and, the first two days, um, you know, we thought uh, we did a research, you know, um, conditions were looking good, but the the long and the short of it was the first two days were, I mean, borderline dangerous We to, to go out. We had gale force winds, um, we had crazy um, rain and snow. So um, 
for, let's imagine, Colby, that this is someone's listening and this is their, you know, first time to to Norway. They're so excited and their first two days are completely shot. So the theme here is kind of expectations versus reality, right? So what, what does that even mean? Or let's say you're, you're our friend Pedro and you get here and literally your entire bag with your tripods in there, your winter clothing's in there. They're, the airports have no idea where they are. So let's start with that topic um, and, and, and talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the idea of, of you know, fantasy versus reality, expectation versus reality is a challenging situation for most people in life, not just certainly not endemic to photographers. But I think that it's, it's a really important distinction to understand the differences between the two. And I feel that the over-romanticized notion of being a travel or outdoor or just a photographer in general kind of mucks up that the, the reality of what it's like out here. And the reality is, is that in places like Lofoten, what makes it so special is the weather. So the light that you get up here and the crazy clouds and, and the crazy, you know, all the amazing images that you've seen are because the weather can be so fierce uh, and, 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 um, and you have to work to deal with that and figure out ways through it. So when you arrive in a new location or and, and you don't have your bag or the weather isn't as you initially thought it was going to be, I mean, I, th I think the best way to approach it is, is well, I, I, there's no real easy answer, but just right. to not take life too seriously. I mean, real you know, realizing that you can't control the weather, you can't control these situations. And so you kind of have to look at it more pragmatically and to try to figure out what can you do, what can you shoot and try to find the best out of the situation. I spend a lot of Q1 and Q2 every year in Iceland, Norway, and Patagonia, and, and moving forward in, into the Antarctic. And the weather in all these places can be rough and it can be challenging and, and you know debilitating at times to, to not be able to get the stuff that you want to. And so you just kind of have to have patience. You have to realize the reality of photography in general is that if you look at, at you know a photographer's breadth of work from a location, Unless they get incredibly lucky with a single yep. trip, yep. the photographers that have the best content from a given location are the ones that live there. And it's because of simple time. Now, it's not to negate to say that they might be talented and they you know, have the right gear and all these other things. But the sheer number of times that they can be there and work around the challenging weather is uh, indicative of the number of amazing images that they might have from a location, or at least the opportunities they have to create those. So you have to be realistic and looking at situations and say, this is what you want, but you might not always get that. And totally. that's hard for a lot of people to accept. Yeah, I mean, especially, listen, you know, especially if your photography is kind of the, that is your uh, escape or your respite from, uh, you know, you have a full-time job and you, you saved up to go to this location and you've been looking forward to it and you've seen a thousand and one beautiful photos on Instagram or, you know, wherever. It's understandable to think that, okay, I'm making the same exact effort that Colby's making. I'm, I, I booked the flights. I, I'm going to the place at the same time of year. I'm, I have the gear that I need. I, got, I have my base layer and my mid layer, but I get there and it's completely off. I mean, this you mentioned you just had a private workshop in Iceland. If I'm correct, that's your 30th time to Iceland? Yes, I've been to Iceland 30 times in the last nine years. So you would expect, you know, while you don't live there, you're kind of like, I would say, like almost an honorary uh, Icelandic citizen. Um, that 
the same thing like where where I live in 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 uh, the Pacific Northwest. Same thing when you lived in Colorado. There are opportunities. I would say wherever you live, you know, maybe you have to drive a few hours to to get there. But it's not luck. I can't. Uh, it can't be about luck. Although sometimes it is. It has to be about that persistence, about mastering the location and your understanding of it. And even someone like you. So like, let's say you went to Iceland thirty times. I get that, but. That you would think that all right, man, Colby, he just kind of gets it, like probably immune to this kind of stuff. But earlier, no, this was in December. You went to uh, the subarctic, Canadian subarctic, to shoot polar bears, right? Absolutely. And yep. so, why don't you just like just tell people like that can't couldn't have been a cheap trip? And what happened? Absolutely, <laughs> this is a good story. All right, so yeah, it was actually in November. So it was in November. Typically, what happens? I was. Or, I was going there to photograph the polar bears. Polar bear season, typically for the most part in that part of the world, this is around Churchill in the Hudson Bay area, is your mid to late October through about mid-November for the most part. And that's the time where the polar bears are coming back to Hudson Bay, waiting for the ice to freeze so that they can go on the ice and hunt seals. That's how they, they survive. And so I went up there for a 10-day trip. Um, it was w- with a company that takes you out to these very remote locations, r- remote area. And it was an expensive trip. It's about $12,000, $12,000 to $14,000, depending on yep. the situation. And what happened was, is that this year, the freeze came early. So you had these polar vortexes come through. And typically, it was two to three weeks earlier than it statistically has been in the area. And so the ice froze early. And so I'd say about 80 to 90% of the polar bears left the area and went out onto the ice uh, where normally in this situation, the the temporary, you know, um, uh, kind of accommodation or lodge that they set up is like right in the prime position for the polar bears passing by to eventually go out onto the ice. But in this situation, they had already left for the most part. And so what happened is that the temperatures were so cold when I was up there. We had a few days where it was negative 55 degrees centigrade. Oh, my God. Not only did the polar bears leave, but most of the rest of the Arctic, uh, Antarctic wildlife had also disappeared to some extent. They were trying to survive. And so what normally would be a somewhat abundance of Arctic foxes of various different kinds, uh, ptarmigans, uh, Arctic hares, um, and of course, polar bears that we were there to photograph, this this large group I was with this expedition, um, we got very little of all of that. I, I saw two Arctic foxes in nine days. We I photographed a couple different ptarmigan um, and saw one pair of Arctic hare. And then the only way that I was able to see polar bears is that I had to rent a helicopter and then... Not cheap. Not cheap. And then I had to make my way out uh, f- much further away than where, where we were based at, where we were permitted to be in this this remote national park and saw them from the air. And I got some nice images I'm happy with, but it wasn't what I was there for. And in that situation, it was challenging because unlike places in Africa, so I do a lot of wildlife photography in like South Africa. I was just there in December after this Canadian uh, uh, subarctic trip. And even if I went down there to photograph leopards, and let's say I didn't see leopards, although I did, but let's say I didn't, there is so much more wildlife. There's right, so many more right. things to photograph. Like there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bird species and, um, you know, all all different types of, of uh, you know, gazelles, and like all these different things to photograph so that there's always content to be created. Whereas when you go somewhere remote that is super cold, usually you get, there, there's just nothing. And so spending eight to nine days 
out in this remote area that I, there was a, a couple days where we went out for like seven or eight hours during the day, just driving around trying to find something. And we saw literally no life, like nothing, not one thing. And so that gets a little bit more challenging in this kind of situation to deal with it, you know, um, you know, mentally. Right. And sometimes emotionally for some people. I mean, for me, I just love, you know, it was so surreal being out in this remote part. It was kind of cool. I still got some good content. But for other people that had gone on this trip, they started getting angry and, and upset. Oh, really? And absolutely. I yeah. mean, it, it's, it's a lot of money. And so, you know, it, it's it's hard for companies that are working in these situations to deal with that type of stuff. But I think, you know, the, the crux of the issue is just, again, that idea of, you know, anticipation mm-hmm. of, of what your expectations are, and then either, you know, positively handling it when things don't go the way you intended, or, or letting it negatively affect you. And at the end of the day, I always try to go for the positive. You know, there's always something to photograph, there's always some sort of silver lining if you can find it. But again, I coming back to it, I mean, if I, if I went back up there, you know, 10 times in a row for 10 seasons, like I would have a ton of great content. I, I know, um, uh, there's, there's a Canadian uh, photographer that was kind of the photographer in residence, um, with this expedition, uh, Michelle, uh, or Melissa Valberg, uh, no, Michelle Valberg. And, uh, she, uh, is a Nikon ambassador for Canada and works with this company as well as, you know, a lot of other companies out there has some amazing content from these areas, even on the same trip from previous years that she's gone on. Cause she's been working with them for like five or six years, but she's had the time. She's put the time and the effort into it. Right. And I went once and had bad luck in terms of the weather and had to figure out how to deal with it. And it's, it's like I said, it, it is a common situation for a lot of photographers in the day of Instagram where you look through people's feeds and it's nothing but amazing, amazing images and amazing light and everything coming together. And then reality is that that was one in 30 days. And, you know, does that one in 30 day situation overlap with your two day trip, four day trip, 10 day trip? you know, that's where the luck comes in. Yeah. I mean, if, if it's something that really could, you know, ruin you emotionally, you, you know, you have to question whether this kind of landscape photography, that's the right thing. You know, maybe you should focus on different photography where you have more control, like, you know, commercial indoor photography, because it, it can be super demoralizing. And just, just before we started recording, you know, Colby and I were, were joking with Pedro again, you know, that his, if it were me, if it were my bag that were lost for this long, this long, two days, three days, I, I would, uh, everything in this house would be flipped over. I would be losing my, my oodles of noodles because I am, I t- tend to take things a bit more uh, aggressively, um, you know. Personally. Bo- per- personally. And and that's why I, I do enjoy traveling with Cole because I, I do believe that there's a very much a yin and yang to the way we approach things. Um, there's, there's, there's a positive and a negative to both sides of this. And as long as you strike that balance, with that said, as I get older, I'm trying very, very actively to to, to take these things in stride a bit more. Uh, you know, with with Pedro, fortunately, you know, we have enough spare stuff, uh, spare cores, spare. I have a second uh, pair of of snow pants that uh, hopefully the, I think the biggest thing for Pedro right now is, is a tripod where he's using a gorilla pod, uh, which I feel for him because I mean he's here co-leading the workshop, so it's like. You, hopefully before the workshop starts, everything will be resolved. 
So I think one of the biggest issues here that that truly is at the base of this, specifically when it comes to photographers, and again, not counting, you know, pe- you know, situations like Pedro's bag, but actually like disappointing trips where the weather doesn't work out, is that there has been this unfortunate, what I feel is a negative trend in photography that has photographers chasing trophies rather than experiences. Great. And I think that this is a really big issue that is systemic within a large portions of the photography industry and a lot of it again coming back to social media and other things has helped exacerbate it and and make it either more prevalent or or worse or, or more in people's face and what I mean by that is that you know a photographer coming up here to Lofoten wants to see a very specific scene maybe they're coming on one of my workshops and they saw a specific photo and it's like I want to recreate that photo that to me is not a good way to approach a photography in general, but certainly travel and outdoor photography, because again, there's just so much that you don't control. However, if you go into it with the mindset that you're there for the experience and you're trying to figure out ways to document that experience in the most uh, you know, amazing, impactful, and engaging way possible, that completely can change your mindset and help you deal with these challenging situations. I mean, as as Brian was just mentioning, like we have different approaches to a lot of different things in life. And, and for me personally, not only do I not try to take life too seriously, but also I try to, to approach things as pragmatically as I possibly can, understanding that even if things don't go well, even if I paid all this money, I'm in the middle of the Canadian subarctic and I haven't seen polar bears, like just the fact that I'm in this remote area that only probably 30 to 40 people get to see any given year and how many people in totality have been able to have that experience of being out there in this alien-like world, to me, left a smile on my face every day, even though, you know, photographically, I was getting a little frustrated, I was still just content and happy with that experience of being out there. And I think that's something that a lot of photographers need to figure out a way to take to heart or to make their own, is that understand that there is this fantasy and there is this reality. And then if you approach this whole idea of photography uh, with this this notion that you have to chase these photos, that you need certain kinds of images to validate yourself as an artist or as an individual or to build your own confidence, like you're approaching it the wrong way, you know, those types of things need to come from within. And, and if you're fortunate in this industry to be able to capture amazing situations where the light is beautiful and it does work together, that's awesome. But that can't define you as a photographer because it's only going to lead to disappointment. That's uh, as well put as I could uh, imagine. Uh, And I agree a hundred percent with what you said. And if anything, I think, I think everyone should go through these kinds of, uh, you know, these, the, the, fantasy versus reality where they go somewhere and it just doesn't pan out. I think that's where the the real kind of, uh, you test your metal, or that's where the the hallmark of, of a creative, uh, you know, is born, where um, things aren't going your way. And it's like, what do you do? What do, what do you do? What do you just kind of like pack up? You just sit in your hotel room or brood? Like, no, you, you there are always things that you can do. And um, I, th- I think the mindset, the, that's that's the important thing. Maybe it's, it's you know, however you get yourself to that place, I think that that's important. It's something I, I am trying to work on as well because I first admit I'm definitely more of the, the, the cynical, pe- pessimistic person. I always have been. Um, but I've, I feel like over the years I'm, I'm trying to, to change and, like I said, take things a bit more in stride. I think the more I travel, the more that helps. If you're if you're kind of at home, that that might be hard. If you're in the same static environment, that might be hard. 
And actually, what I want to talk about now is the original kind of impetus for this uh, fantasy versus reality or expectations versus reality topic. Because remember, episode 51, we were going to talk about this, but it ran along with social media. Back then, uh, a week or so, a couple of days before we recorded the episode, I went out and I bought one of those DJI Osmo Pockets. So this tiny little kind of three-axis uh, stabilized uh, little kind of recorder has a camera on it and a little tiny display and all kinds of stuff. And uh, I I bought it I, and then I learned you bought it too because we both wanted to, to, to I had expectation. Like I, I thought that after seeing all of these, I saw all these YouTube videos and, 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 and read uh, reviews about it. And I, in my mind, I built this thing out to be this like, it's good, this thing's gonna be great. And when I got it, my experience was very, very different. So much so, it was such a sour experience. I was like, within a day or two, I, I told you, I'm like, I'm returning this thing. And, and we started talking about it. And this is where the topic came from because my expectations were wildly different than yours. And so why don't you talk about, um, you know, what you, why you bought it and, and just kind of like use this as, as kind of like a tie the whole thing together. Absolutely. So I initially, so I mean, like most of us here in the photography space, I saw the announcement for the DJI Osmo Pocket and got excited. And it was something that it was small and portable, three axis gimbal, connects to your phone, allows you to create some interesting content, you know, both photo, video, panoramas, uh, time lapses, hyperlapses, all sorts of cool stuff. And so what happened is that I ordered mine just before Christmas, uh, right when it came out, it came available. And I, it arrived just before I left for Antarctica. I was going to Antarctica, the Falkland Islands, and South Georgia. And the reason that I was excited about it is that I've always wanted something that is small and portable, and it's something that is great for quick access B-roll footage. I want something that, that you know, essentially fits in my pocket that I can pull out and see some sort of scene unfolding in front of me and capture this 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 easy footage that I can then splice together and make it part of larger video products or, or video compilations or marketing pieces or whatever it is. Or just social media. Or just social media, absolutely. And the the Osmo Pocket kind of fit that gap for me. It was, again, it was small, it was light, it was portable, it was powerful enough to be able to get that type of content. And so for me in Antarctica, it's like I'm walking around these penguin colonies with like 500,000 king penguins, or I'm on a Zodiac floating around icebergs. Like I don't want to constantly be changing my camera and the camera settings from photo to video and all this other stuff. I mean, certainly there were times when that was more right. a necessity because you wanted this higher quality of content. But oftentimes I want these quick B-roll shots. And most people don't realize that B-roll for most video products or video projects is you know usually three to five seconds right it's like three to five seconds spliced in between everything else that you're doing so you don't need these long form scenes necessarily and the osmo pocket fit great for that and so that's why i got it i was excited so when i came back from having you know great experience with it uh we were talking and i was like hey you should pick this up and then you did and yeah. then you came back with your first impressions yeah i went out uh you know i wasn't in antarctica i went out uh, shooting with a couple of buddies uh, to a waterfall and this is my first time using it so obviously there uh, was a bit of a learning curve just getting familiar with it um, and I will say my experiences were very lackluster with that said it wasn't totally because of the product itself and this is something we you know so we let's kind of bring this to its kind of logical conclusion I came back afterwards 
I, I reached out to you and I kind of was like, this thing's going back. And, and, and it was that conversation that really kind of, uh, you know, formed this topic because you brought up like, well, what do you, you know, what were your expectations? What were you thinking? Um, and that's where uh, I really, you know, for me, it really kind of a, a kind of a light bulb went on in my head. It's like, I think I was setting the expectations that I would put on, like you said, um, my, my A7R three, for example, um, doing 4K, uh, 24 frames or 60 frames per second, you know, big, you know, big um, uh, camera, big sensor, you know, big lens. And in reality, I'm holding this thing that's like, I mean, it is, if you haven't seen it, you really should. It is so small. And not only is it small, but it actually has a very functional three-axis gimbal. So it's giving you not a software stabilization like a GoPro. But the hardware. But hard, exactly. So, um, you know, that's, I think, an important thing to talk about. Maybe you want to talk about, like, I think there, you know, a lot of people, they'll, they'll go out and they'll buy this new camera because they, and expect it to make their photos, that make them be better photographers. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have, you know, GAS, gear acquisition syndrome, where a lot of photographers in this space or I guess photographers in general, feel the need to constantly have the latest and greatest and not necessarily spend their time, you know, focusing maybe as much as they should, more so on crafting their vision and their style and their skill levels. Um, I think in this case, you have two different aspects of the fantasy versus reality argument. You have the fantasy uh, versus reality segment where we're talking about actual physical hardware, where I think initially you were thinking that this device was going to be a, not necessarily a replacement, but a situational replacement for your larger full frame Sony cameras. And in reality, uh, that was not the case. Exactly. Like it, it can't, it's not a full frame camera. You're not going to get the shallow depth of field. It takes really, you know, nice quality both stills and video in, you know, decent to, to great light. And in low light, it's going to struggle because of the size of the sensor. And I think initially there was a little bit of that. And then I think also there was a little bit of disconnect with the functionality of yes. how it was working, where you expected things to work as you had envisioned it. And uh, instead, at the time before the latest firmware update, you actually had to have your phone attached to this device for the larger display to access a lot more of the pro features that gave you the flexibility to shoot at 24 frames per second for that kind of, um, you know, motion blur look uh, that is more cinematic right. than a higher frame uh, frame rate look. And, and I think you became disappointed in both those facets. And then, you know, initially, we're just trying to return it until we had that conversation and, and try to break it down. And I think coming back to your initial question about this, and for all the people that are listening, you know, asking yourself a lot of the same questions, like, what are your expectations when you get new gear? What are you hoping that it can do or should do? And again, trying to pragmatically and, you know, look at that situation and, and figure out if it's a good fit for you or not. There are a lot of pros out there where the Osmo Pocket um, is not a good fit. It's just not for you based on your needs as a content creator. But there's a lot of other people where it is a good fit, where, you know, the type of content that it can create and the form and functionality of it works within the needs of the individual. And I think oftentimes we tend to fixate on just the fact that something is new and shiny and has a lot of megapixels that it's going to make us a better photographer or that it's always going to work for the situations just because it's new. And that's not always the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that was it. Um, I think you, you hit it on the head because for me, 
one of the things I think we established through that conversation, and it's clear, listen, you know, I mean, well, it's clear, it's, it's our opinion, but I believe that DGI, you know, they rushed this out the door. They wanted that pocket out. Um, for Christmas. For Christmas. And they're like, well, we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll bring it to its, we know what it's capable of doing, what it's been de- designed to do. We'll just bring that through firmware updates. And I will say that the early February firmware update that fortunately came out, I think a day or two before I left for the Dolomites, it brought the Osmo Pocket to where I, it met my my expectation to my reality that I didn't need to connect the phone to activate those pro features anymore. Um, because one of my biggest frustrations was, that first um, that first use that I was telling you about at the waterfalls was I couldn't lock in my my uh, my settings for the video and anyone who does video you you kind of know that like uh, typically if I'm shooting 24 frames per second like you said because I do like that cinematic look I'll lock my exposure at 150th of a second and use ISO um, to adjust um, the the uh, exposure in conjunction with ND filters because video is a completely different beast than stills. And one, I didn't have ND filters then. And two, I was seeing that I didn't have manual control. The, uh, the Osmo Pocket was controlling the exposure, setting these weird uh, uh, exposure values. And it was really frustrating me that I couldn't do that because I couldn't, if I can try to conform those videos to a 24 frame per second clip. It wouldn't look good. Right, it wouldn't look good. Now you could have accessed those things at the time by plugging in your phone which was a little bit of an onus on you for not doing your research beforehand in terms of, you know, how it should work with that. But that being said, I agree, it should have always been built into just the gimbal and the camera itself, not having to have your phone attached to the side of this thing, which gives you a better display, but does make it not as portable, at least in the moment, even though, again, they disconnect and both fit into your pocket just fine. Right. And I mean, double onus on me because I left the phone in my buddy Dan's. Actually, Dan was a a guest. uh, I can't remember the episode, but I left it in his in his truck. So uh, even if I had it, I couldn't do it. So, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. All things considered, I didn't end up returning it. In fact, I love it. It's in my I keep it in my jacket pocket pretty much everywhere I go. Um, So yeah, I think that that kind of ties up that uh, the hardware side of of things, Colby. Uh, and so I'm glad that we we were able to to you know, yeah, tie this up. I uh, guess for lack of better words. No, no, it's a, I mean it's a good topic, and it's something that I know gets talked a lot a, a lot on message boards and on social media. But I think people don't really do too much of a deep dive into asking themselves these you know very I don't want to necessarily say serious questions, but important questions when it comes to gear, when it comes to how it functions, what you expect it to be able to do. And of course, you know, how it ties into, you know, GIS and gear acquisition syndrome, where you, if you're, and this wasn't the case necessarily in, you know, talking about the DJI Osmo Pocket, but for a lot of photographers out there, where the latest Canon, Nikon, Sony, Fuji camera is all of a sudden going to make you a better photographer, like that's not how it's supposed to work. Um, Obviously, if you have the money, do what you want to do. We're not here to tell you anything differently. But for most of us, even those that do this professionally, if the gear that we have is limiting our creativity, at that point, that's when I feel that it's a, a positive place to sit there and say, what, you know, what gear can I get that will open up these other doors that I can't do right now? And too many times I feel people skip that step and it's just like, oh, I have a D8800, I need to get the 850. Why? 
Right. Because it's new. Well, right. Well, what are you doing that is, you know, is it is the ISO better? Is And, and if so, is that going to open you up to do more night photography? That makes sense. In this situation with the Osmo Pocket, it's like, okay, for me, it's hard to change my gear or have things set up always on the fly for this B-roll content, which is why I tend to not shoot so much. So it fills a gap that allows me to create some of this stuff to be creative, to get the content that I want that can put into larger uh, video campaigns that are marketing campaigns for big companies that I get paid a lot of money for, but it allows me to capture it on the fly. And that was a gap that I had in my gear setup for it. It wasn't just come out. It didn't come out. I just like, I have to have it because it's new. It's like, this is going to do something for me. And so that's why I want to purchase it. So for those listening, try to ask yourself these questions when it comes to new lenses, new gear, all this other stuff, and try to figure out where are the gaps that you have and do those gaps limit you, your creativity and your vision. And if they do, then absolutely, then subjectively look at figuring out how to maybe procure and, and purchase those pieces or rent them or whatever it is. But if it's not the situation, then you need to take your time a little bit and, and you need to, you know, figure out the gear that you have. Same thing happens with post-processing. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times on a lot of my workshops, I get people that are relatively brand new to photography or new-ish and they'll come on the first day of the workshop. They'll be like, I want you to teach me about, you know, teach me how to use luminosity masks. Luminosity masks. I knew and you were going like, to say that. Yeah. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> and and the reality is, is that you need to understand the basics before you get there. Yeah. And again, expectations, reality, people feel or they're told from other photographers or YouTube creators or whoever it is, that they need to have this camera, they need to use the software, they need to use this technique. And, and there's generally a little bit of a process that you need to get through so that you fully can take advantage of these tools because they are pretty incredible and they're, they can help you do a lot of things, but you need to know how to use them first before you can begin looking at the next generation. Yeah, and, and I, I think like speaking specifically about cameras, like the, the need to upgrade, that was something that I think was more valid or prevalent of an argument in the earlier days, like seven to 10 to 11 years ago, because where you can take one of these um, these raw files from an early camera, like a 5D2 um, or, a, you know, one of the D8000s, you know, kind of like the, seven, I don't know, Nikon models, but like where you get to a point with proficiency that you take the raw file into Lightroom, for example, and you can see it fall apart. Like you, you're, you have the capability and the skill and the talent to get this beautiful, say, photo, but the you're physically physically, I guess, in air quotes, limited by the capabilities of the camera where it just, you can't recover shadows, for example, or the highlights fall apart. So there, yeah, totally. I can say, all right, you've reached a point where you've hit that wall with the camera to justify getting something with a larger sensor, or better dynamic range. It, with with lenses, for me, my thing was, the, the my first foray into, uh, I guess, you know, professional photography was, well before um, I really did anything, um, you know, online, I, I just kind of fell into commercial real estate photography. A buddy of mine, when I was living in, in the Boston, New England area, uh, opened up a restaurant. He asked me to take photos of the, the, the place, and I did. And that that went well, and it led to other uh, opportunities like that. And it got to a point where, remember, this is well before Lightroom had any sort of lens correction or geometry correction. And it was, uh, I was shooting at, I had to shoot at wider angles uh, to get these, these kind of uh, scenic shot, interior scenic shots. Um, and I realized, listen, I need to invest in a tilt shift lens. 
And, and it wasn't something I got because I wanted that, you know, miniature toy model effect. I needed to be able to shift the lens to get um, kind of uh, uh, the... Um, no parallax. No parallax, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And um, um, the rectilinear lines, straight, vertical, and horizontal lines. And that's something I think, Colby, you know, you, you, you hit the nail on the head again with, like, people see on social media or they're, they're on YouTube. I mean, we're all on YouTube watching videos and stuff. And it's easy to kind of fall into that, like, man, I really need it. We talk, we talk about it all the time. But I think we talk more from an academic perspective, not like, you know, you... I think, you know, you, you have a good grasp of like, if I'm going to spend money on something, I better damn well need it, right? Yeah, I better actually get use out of it. And and yeah, again, I, I think it's it's an easy trap. And I think to be fair and honest, we've all fallen into it. Yep. I was, you know, I, I was certainly part of that space, you know, early on in my career, where I felt I needed things to be quote unquote professional. Um, and, and, and to this day, I still see some of these, those same elements of how I used to act on a lot of, of photographers aspiring and people coming out there, you know, speaking of, you know, bringing things a little bit full circle back to where we are here in the Lafon Islands, like it's Aurora season, we hopefully will be doing a decent amount of night shooting, like a lot of photographers feel that you have to, you know, full stop have to have an f2.8 lens to shoot this stuff and while an f2.8 lens is a faster lens allowing more light and to hit your sensor so you can use a lower iso that's true there's validity to that argument however it's not that you can't shoot it with an f4 lens you just lose a stop of iso so you're no your, your images are going to be a little bit more noisy so if you want to get into night photography or you're coming on say this workshop with me um, and you don't have an f2.8 lens, you don't have the money to necessarily rent it because these trips aren't always very cheap that, you know, you can shoot with f4 and maybe work on your, you know, noise reduction, you know, your, your, your technique and your workflow for that. And then just deal with it until you, prof you know, get proficient at understanding noise reduction, how it works, how you like to apply it. And then when you saved up some money, sell your f4 lens grab a 2.8 but it's not required to do yeah uh you know for this type of photography there's there's very little requirements for uh, the type of gear that we use compared to something like sports or wildlife where you typically need these long big you know super expensive lenses you know cameras that have high autofocus capabilities outdoor photography when you're shooting from a tripod is actually not super demanding in terms of the gear you need but it can be beneficial to have a wider and arguably a faster lens if possible if not you use what you can and you can still get some great stuff out there yeah i mean uh, i'm going to be probably using my 12 to 24 millimeter which is an f4 because for me with aurora I'm my initial, I'll see how it is, but I would rather get more sky, more foreground. And again, I could be shooting at ISO 3200. I know, one, I know the capabilities of my camera. I know what to expect in terms of the, the kind of noise and grittiness. But two, software today, especially if you're using Lightroom, noise reduction compared to what it used to be has become so much better. It's, it's almost laughable. Um, it, you know, there's almost no no excuse for you not to be able to mitigate noise unless you intentionally want to add grain, for example. So for, for the most part, with yeah. some caveats, obviously with the smaller sensors, you do get yes. hit with the grain a bit yes. more and obviously past a certain point, every sensor does have its limitations. But I do agree. I mean, I think between Lightroom and Capture One and On One Photo Raw and all these different programs, the general noise reduction has gotten better. But there are a ton of other techniques out there, including ironically things with luminosity masking that does sure. make noise reduction so much more effective and efficient without smudging the rest of your details uh, without getting in too much of the technical side of things that do open up those possibilities uh, regardless of what lens you're shooting with so you know don't always i guess the bottom line why i brought it up is like don't fixate 
on the requirements of gear that you think you need to have, especially for situations like this, because there are ways to work around it with the gear you have, save your money, go on trips, have experiences, you know, figure out how to be a better photographer, you know, you know, fine tune your vision. And then if at that stage you do have some leftover money or you set stuff aside and you feel that it's going to open up some other doors, then look at purchasing some new gear because yeah. it's, it's not required for you to have these amazing experiences. Um, it could just be helpful in certain situations. Excellent. Colby, I think we have given the audience a lot to chew on on this on this one episode. So uh, why don't we s- just say, you know, this is this let's call it good. And first of all, thank you, Colby, again, for always being on the show. Um, I'm sure this is not the last time, especially since we're going to be traveling together at least for the next two, three, two and a half weeks. And then maybe, 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 <laughs> maybe at the end of April. Um, so let tell people uh, where they can find about you if they're interested in your workshops or they want to f- uh, contact you on social. Tell them how they can do that. Absolutely. So the best way to get a hold of me, you can go through my website, colbybrownphotography.com. I think right now probably my biggest uh, social media space is Instagram at colbybrownphotography. No spaces, although I'm certainly on Twitter and Facebook and all those other places as well. And then, yeah, I do teach a lot of workshops around the world, both wildlife as well as outdoor landscape. I have uh, a couple of trips coming up uh, to Patagonia in April where I do have one or two spots available. Uh, Still some last second cancellations. If any of you guys are are interested and want to join, uh, Brian might even be there. We're still working on finalizing those details, but I might bring him out as well. Uh, And so there's a lot of great opportunities between there and other places later in the year uh, if you guys are interested. And again, all that information can be found on my website. Yeah, just go uh, when you're on colbybrownphotography.com. There's a workshops uh, menu item, and then go to the actual workshops because you also you do online and I got private. online classes and private classes and all sorts of well, but yeah, the public spacing one it, it's pretty obvious where it's going to be. Yeah, um, so if you're interested, uh, I, I highly recommend checking it out. And um, for for me, uh, I am at uh, matias.com, m-a-t-i-a-s-h.com. Show notes are at nonamephotoshow.com. And uh, again, Colby, thanks a lot for for doing this. And uh, yeah. I appreciate it. I always appreciate being on here, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Sounds good, my man. All right, maybe we'll go shooting now because I see a little bit of blue in the sky. Let's head out. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the No Name Photo Show. Don't forget to check out the show notes at nonamephotoshow.com, and be sure to subscribe in whichever app you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss a beat. Let's do this again next time. 